Thank you to our sponsor for season two, Punto Space. The contemporary raw space combines capacity with intimacy. Four distinct spaces on three levels encompass more than 3,500 square feet. Custom configurations, a state-of-the-art audio-visual system, and full-service support provide endless possibilities for realizing your creative vision. Welcome to Currency Shift, the podcast where we showcase and share insights from first, only, and the disruptive. These are people who are creating new lanes and carving new paths for women, people of color, and diversity and inclusion. My name is Shade Simone. Let's get started. All right, we have Simone Tate in the house. Hey, so excited to be here. Yes, I'm glad you're here as well. Let's cheers. Cheers. Yes, let's see what this tastes like. Oh, yum. Oh, that's so refreshing. Oh, wow. I made a great drink. Yes. (laughs) As we ease into spring. I mean, we are easing into it, right? It's taking so long, but today it feels so great outside. It does. So, Miss Tate, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Okay. Well, I'm actually born and raised in New England, first-generation immigrant. So my mom, uh, my parents came here from Jamaica. My mom's Jamaican. My father's Indian. Um, And the man that raised me, I always put this in there, the man that I call daddy, he he is actually from the South. So I had lots of, you know, mixing of cultural heritage and also food. Yeah, um, you know, imagine. in my household. <laughs> uh, but I grew up in Massachusetts in a town called Springfield, Massachusetts. Most people know Springfield for the Basketball Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Seuss mm-hmm. is also from Springfield. And um, yeah, I have, I have pretty deep New England roots now because mm-hmm. I, I was the only one born there in my family. I have an older brother and sister. I went to school there. I went to church there. Um, but when I left Springfield to go to college, uh, and, and I'm a proud graduate of Lafayette College in, in the east in Pennsylvania, um, I actually didn't go back to, to Springfield to, to live. You know, oh, I wow. was creating my own path and going on my own adventures and my own journey. So, um, But my mom still lives in, in Massachusetts. Okay. So I, I do get back there to see her. And what do you do professionally? Yeah, sure. So, you know, for for a long time, I could answer this in <laughs> really just two words, right? I'm in tech startups. And that is true. So so for about 15 years, um, I was building tech startups and, and really on the sales side. Mm-hmm. And I know that we'll probably get into some of, um, you know, what that looks like when you're going into a company, especially a tech startup that's, you know, just raised a seed or a strong series A, Um, but always on the sales side. And I got bit by the bug pretty early on before it was cool in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, startup wasn't this buzzy word. For my family, it just meant you're leaving a Fortune 500 company for what? (laughs) Um, What's the name of the company? Um, And so 
so that's that's actually that's my specialty. That's that's what I've been doing. Um, but about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I actually mm-hmm. launched my own boutique agency here in New York um, called HeartSpace NY. Okay. And what I usually do for you know one company, um, my team and I are able to do and really be impactful with several companies now um, in a year. All tech sales, all tech startups. Uh, we really focus on on sales sales operations. Um, you know, high growth companies mm-hmm. who are looking to break revenue barriers, but also really take a very close look at their process, right. at um, how to make things more efficient, how to stay in philosophically anyway the lean startup mode while also growing. Mm-hmm. Um, getting them through, you know, the pain points, and I think I've seen it all um, in in the past fifteen years or so. So uh, it's actually really, really impactful work, and it, it feels good to be able to, you know, have clients, a breadth of clients, and be working with them, um, and it keeps you really sharp. You know. Yes. So let's take like 10 steps back. Sure. Because we understand where you are now working with tech startups, building out their infrastructure when it comes to sales and operations. But you made a good point that you're first generation. Mm. So tell us a little bit about what were some of your childhood aspirations and dreams when you were younger? Yeah. You know, I'm really open about this story because when I say, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts and I'm first generation, I also like to tell the other side. which is important because um, the other side for me, by the time I came of age, right? Mm -hmm. So by the time I was in elementary school and definitely in middle school, um, my mom was working at a company where she was pretty high up in the ranks. She, Mm -hmm. um, God bless her, she, (laughs) I mean, she got her college degree with, you know, three children, came to this country, got got her degree, it took her a few more years, but she did it. Um, and she always stayed in, in kind of human services, but was, you know, high profile. Mm-hmm. I grew up seeing my mother go into an office every day, um, you know, seeing her um, strive to be better every day. Mm-hmm. And because she was in a an industry that really focused on helping others, I also saw that. So, you know, if someone was like, oh, well, your mom was an executive, to me, you know, she just, she was every woman before I knew what every woman was. So I had kind of this, you know, perception of always striving to do well. But on the other hand, I was also the third, right? My brother and sister were perfectly planned I think because they're two <laughs> they're two and a half years apart and then here I come you know almost t- 10 years younger than my brother eight years younger than my sister um and you know I I lived a very very good life and um I was also very different than anyone else in my family mm-hmm. so I went to private school I went to boarding private school I didn't board that the school was actually just a few miles up from um from our house and and the house that everyone called the big house, if, if mm-hmm. that makes sense, because at that point I was literally an only child. My brother and sister were both in college at that at that point. We you know, I grew up in a beautiful uh, uh, Victorian um, yeah. home and um, 
and when I say private school, I don't mean parochial. I mean like private school. The mm-hmm. tuition, I think, you know, by the time I got to, to high school was like fifty three plus thousand dollars a year. Oh, wow. So my parents, yeah. however, were hard workers. Mm-hmm. And I only had one thing that I needed to do. And I think that is very much the immigrant first generation mentality. And that is we are providing everything for you. You have you know, clothes, you have food, you have shelter, you have Jesus, you have <laughs> church. Um, all you have to do, for me anyway, is make your bed every morning and go to school. And so um, f- for for a long time, uh, there was this um, kind of this, this life that was happening for me, <clears throat> excuse me, going to school, going to my private school, which was majority white. I was the only um, kid of color. I was the only black student, actually, um, in my grade from sixth grade until I think ninth or 10th grade. And then um, I had church, which was, Mm -hmm. you know, my all black, also a mix of first generation, you know, church. So I had a really good balance there. Uh, But the the biggest message in my house was make your bed and go to school. Um, and what go to school meant for me was very different, I think, than my siblings because at that point I think my parents figured out that I was was very different in that I had so many other interests outside of getting straight A's. And so you know, I wasn't a straight A student. I mm-hmm. didn't have my parents like breathing down my back like you have to do well, you have to get it straight A's because you have to be an engineer, you have to be um, a doctor or a lawyer. You know, the narratives, kind of those origin stories that we hear so much with with first-generation immigrants, Yeah, I wasn't getting all of that pressure. And um, the truth is, I think I would have gone the completely opposite way of success if I was. But what I was interested in um, were all the things that I was able to work with others and collaborate and and also do well in school, right? Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I, I wasn't a STEM scholar student, but I got straight, you know, straight A's and I was very involved in things that I was passionate about and things that I think kind of was starting to mold my authentic self. So English and history, mm-hmm. um, you know, those classes, which you know, I think especially in my school, which was a liberal private school, mm-hmm. we had a liberal core curriculum, which I then went to college that had something similar. It allowed the individual and the teachers to focus on the individual in front of them and really um, amplify the things that they were good at. And for me, that usually included things that, you know, weren't uh, doctor, engineer, nurse, or teacher-oriented, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. It sounds like you didn't feel the pressure that your sisters and brothers felt. I guess it was like your parents understanding, okay, in order for her to truly, like, grow, we've learned about our frustrations with our other kids. Let's just let her just be as long as she's generating good grades and going to school. Oh, totally. And I think also, you know, part of what happens when you continue to focus on pride and cultural heritage Mm -hmm. and keeping the culture alive really through the generations, you want every generation to be better than the last, right? And 
and and I'm not going to say that that wasn't a challenge for my mom, especially because my stepdad, I mean, they got married when I was very young. So mm-hmm. him being from the South and also a bit older than my mom, he had a different perspective in life as well. I mean, he, he grew up in kind of the the middle of Jim Crow mm-hmm. um, in South Carolina. And so, you know, he had a he he certainly had a different perspective, um, black American perspective, deep roots here in this country, definitely dating all the way back, right? In the South. And then my mom, on the other hand, I think it was also probably a challenge for her, although I didn't see it so much, mm-hmm. but also a bit of a challenge for her to probably think outside of the, you know, um, outside of the box in what, you know, she probably had dreamed or envisioned for me. And um, I like to say, which is so true in life, to surrender, right? Mm. There are times that you just, you want to surrender, right? It actually is, you know, surrender, surrendering usually um, allows for uh, passageways to open up, you know, for things and doors to kind of swing open that you never you know, thought about before. So even for my mom, I think it was it was probably challenging for her to just like step outside of her comfort and zone allow for me and just, just let me go. go. Exactly. So for you, while you were to essentially have the freedom, yeah, and and that's something that a lot of first generation don't have. Mm-hmm. Like we have a lot of people on our first season who are first generation, and they're just like, no, my parents were like, do this, do that, do mm-hmm. that, and so they have this internal conflict. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you were um, in a position where you didn't have that internal conflict on I have this goal and aspiration that I want to accomplish, but my parents want me to do X, Y, and Z. So what essentially was like something that you you aspired to be when you were in high school or going into high school? What were some of your thoughts on career path? Yeah. Well, coincidentally, although it wasn't being drilled into me to become a doctor, I wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> So you see how that all works, you know, when you you surrender that there's freedom and then mixed in there is also, you know, a very heavy dose of encouragement Mm -hmm. Um, um, and having role models right in your own house, right underneath your own roof. You write that that really makes a huge impact. So actually, so as a child, I mean, a kid, a I would say five years old. Okay. I didn't know the name, but I did know that I wanted to be a doctor who delivered babies. Mm-hmm. And when I learned the word that being an obstetrician, um, that was my path. I just had it stuck in my head. Um, and and I'm going to, you know, kind of, I'm going to say this name, and I think it's important because in retrospect, goodness, it's crazy how many decades between what you think you want to be who inspired you to do that and now looking back at it saying, oh, my goodness, there's no way. Um, But actually, I was very much inspired by Ben Carson. And I was inspired by Ben Carson for a couple of reasons. So I was raised Christian, specifically Seventh-day Adventist. Mm. And Ben Carson was as well. And he had a book when I was – that came out maybe when I was like eight or nine years old called Gifted Hands. Mm -hmm. And all, you know, the church kids had to read the book. And I just, there was just something about his story 
um, that really stuck with me. And I remember writing him a letter. He actually wrote me back, mm. and I wrote him a letter saying, I want to be a doctor just like you. You know, he was a neurosurgeon, but it didn't matter. There was yeah, identity he, there. He made history as a neurosurgeon. Oh, absolutely. Um, didn't he separate yes, Siamese? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, in, in the U.S., one of the first doctors to do it. Um and being black and yes. striving to do, you know, and be the most excellent that he could be. And I, I just identified with that. And so actually it pushed me over the edge even further, like I'm going to stick to doing this. Mm-hmm. So, th- you know, coincidentally, I should say probably the irony of this is that I was not – I did not do very well in science and math, right? The chemistry, the course, the things, the classes in high school you really need to be good at, if yes. that makes sense. Um, but I was okay, right? <laughs> I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't failing just yet, and we should talk about failure because that's so important in life. Um, but I was doing okay, okay enough that when I, I did, when I got into college – I went on that pre-med track and I started to take all of those classes and um, and uh, I took all of those classes and I actually failed. For the first time in my life, I failed a class and it was my freshman year. I mean, God bless them. I think it's part of what they do in general when it comes to, to pre-med students and mm-hmm. students in the sciences, but especially when they want to be doctors, they actually want to weed you out pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um and so, yes, yeah, so that happened. <laughs> I was weeded <laughs> out very quickly. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I said I'm bringing up his name, Ben Carson. But, you know, I and I also said, and I, I do really want to make this point, that I had the best role models right underneath my own roof. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I looked up to my parents and my siblings, but other people outside of my house looked hold, up to looked them, up too. To them yeah. too. And my house was the house that everyone came over, you know, during the week, there was always a meal for everyone. You could stop by. It was mm-hmm. like, you know, loaves and fishes. They just continued to multiply no matter <laughs> who was coming over. Um, you know, lots of parties and, you know, just an open, really an open door policy. And and also, in addition to that, I was the kid that loved my home. So I didn't like going to sleepovers. Or I would go and then I would call my dad at like 2 a.m. in the morning. He'd come pick me up, right. you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I think it is so, so important important to have aspirations and see people and others out there, um, even when they're so much older than you, even if there's one or two things that you identify with. And yes, back then I identified with Ben Carson on on this one thing. Um, I do not (laughs) identify with him at all today. So I really need to make that disclosure and the disclaimer. I would actually like to have a conversation with the brother, but you know, this is uh anyway so no, yeah but that 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 kind of gives perspective or leads to perspective around like when your heroes kind of fall off in the sense of being your hero when you start to really see them as who they are as they grow and mature and they grow and mature in, in different ways than sure. what you're um familiar with sure. so so talk to us a little bit about where that shift or occurred where you went from aspiring to be like Ben Carson as the doctor specifically to flunking out not flunking out but not doing well I mean I, that's harsh <laughs> 
but we'll talk about it. <laughs> but failing out of pre med, like, yeah. what what did you do next? Like, what was your your next step after your first experience? It sounds like with failure. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, well, okay. So so I I was I think pretty precocious, right? So the interesting thing, um. I would say about me and that I've kept and I just I just started to really come into it um, in the past few years and, and I've just started to accept it. And that is I have a really high threshold for and a short memory, but a high threshold <laughs> um, for resourcefulness and and trying different things and also failing in different ways if mm. that makes sense and talk to us a little bit. say that again though you yeah. said failing in different ways yes okay failing in different ways right so um i would go after the blue ribbon in anything that i wanted to if that made sense but if i came in last which some people would think would be a failure. For me, it was actually a, a learning experience. And I was just proud of myself for trying. Mm. And I think that is not necessarily an easy thing for most people to accept, right? Because if you're going after something, and especially if you're kind of like a triple type A personality person, failure is not even an option. Right. Um, and so failing in different ways, right? So there was uh, failing in college. Mm-hmm actually a class, failing a class in college, um, which is very different, in my opinion, than, you know, failing a test, for example, in college, right? Um, And I don't, it's hard to like piecemeal out failure, but once you start to fail, you, in my opinion, start to fail fast and you fail forward, hopefully. and you also start to fail in different ways. I'm a divorced woman. I have a, f- a failed marriage in my life as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that doesn't compare to my failed class. But because I failed my class, one class in college, mm-hmm. it actually opened up an entire different world for me. Because I had to sit back and say, okay, what is it that I want to do? What am I good at? Yes. Um and then as a freshman in college, that's a hard enough question. I think we, you're questioning. It's you know you're you're you should be evolving and, and questioning uh, yourself about this as you go along anyway. Right. Um, but it opened up an entirely different world, and I started to go after different things, and I started to try different things, and so I actually eventually, you know, fell into and just let me put this out there. I graduated from college with two degrees, three yeah. minors. I also <laughs> placed completely out of my first basically two years of college because I took so many great classes, and mm-hmm. I went to a private school, so it placed me out of a lot of the core curriculum, and it was a competitive school, so. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but it allowed me to go after my different interests. One of them was political science. I was a government and law major. Mm -hmm. I stuck with what I loved, which was English. Right. And so that was my second major and it leveled everything out for me. Um, I ended up picking up a a minor in women's studies. And I mean, I just I think failing no matter what, wherever you are in your life is actually just an indication that it is time most likely to try something new. Yes, um, I love failure. It's weird to say that, but when I was in college, I realized that, oh, okay, if I get a, a C 
life isn't over. Mm-hmm. If I don't graduate with the GPA that I want, life's not over. I can still try different things and still be successful. Because I think in college, that's when I realized that sales was the route for me. So I stopped putting a lot of, I guess, pressure on myself to be like an A-B student. Like I became okay with some C's, mm-hmm. a lot of C's. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. some B's. Yeah. You know, like, I became that person that was like, okay, college is great as long as I get the degree. That's the end goal. And then for me, because the career field that I was going into wasn't really dependent upon my grades from college, right. it allowed me to just really focus on my sales career, right? So I love the fact that you're speaking about failure because I think a lot of people are scared to fail. They see it as a bad word, but I think we're on the same page where we're looking at failure as redirection mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. as something that's bad. And I'll say that again. I'll do that for myself. Yeah. Failure is just redirection, right. Right? right? And it sounds like it redirected you in a way where you were able to graduate with multiple degrees, multiple minors, but you were in a happier disposition because of it. Absolutely. I met you at um, Chantel George. Uh, she's episode seven, season one, and she owns a company called Sisters in Sales. And we went to one of her events because I support all of my currency shifters. Welcome Amen. to the family. Thank you. Um, and you were on the panel, and you told us this story about how when you were in college, you essentially started your own mini company. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so talking about sales, really, and, and sort of going down that path started pretty early for me. I should have known. I mean, most of my family is in sales in some capacity, or mm-hmm. they have their own business, but I wasn't paying attention to that, right? I was actually, <laughs> I was very much paying, um, let me put it this way. I was minding my own business, right? <laughs> and trying to figure out things for myself. Um, okay, so when I was a freshman in college, my second um, my second semester, my father became very ill. Unexpectedly, he had a brain aneurysm that then put him into a coma for several months. And so I grew up very fast at that point. I was living this like rose colored, you know, yeah. life and um, very, I was very, very close with my father. And, uh, and then suddenly I realized that, okay, you know, my, not only is the attention in my family, we really need to focus on um, getting him healthy, get at that point, just getting him out of the coma, making, you know, certain decisions in life that that really make you grow up very quickly when you think about more uh, uh, life and death and mortality and what that means for the most special people in your life that you love. And um, it also meant for me that it was time for me to be more independent. Right. And, yeah. you know, people meet me today or they've met me through, you know, years and in, in my adulthood, and they probably would never believe that I didn't even know how to do my laundry when I went to college. My dad did my laundry. Like, I didn't know how to cook. I mean, I couldn't boil water without burning it, right? Oh, wow. So um, <laughs> it's hard to believe now, uh, patting myself on the back a little bit here. But 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 my dad was um, and had a huge influence I only give those examples to also say that I was also not aware of any sort of financial burden, if that made sense. You know, I yeah. saw my parents working really, yeah, really hard. And look, that there's a gift and a curse there. Um, I very like fundamentally believe in teaching children about finance as soon as you can. I think mm-hmm. that's really important. But here I was freshman year, and I had never asked 
Where is the money for college books coming from? Where is the money for tuition coming from? Where is the money for to feed me in college coming from? Oh, where is the money when I want to go, you know, to France? Where is that coming from to study abroad? Yeah. Well, that was a moment in time for me, and I decided at that moment that I needed to pitch in. And, um, you know, metaphorically speaking, if we think about those times in our lives when we need to pitch in, whether it's professionally or personally, or a combination of both, you know, pitching in means usually going beyond what you are aware of and even what you know that you need to do. You just mm -hmm. know that you need to be helpful. And for me, um, I pitched in on the financial side and I was the neighborhood babysitter in my neighborhood growing up. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought, okay, what are my transferable skills for pitching in here? <laughs> oh, <laughs> where are the babies, right? And I, <laughs> I started to babysit. Um, yeah. On my campus, and I started to babysit. That started my sophomore year. Who were you? What kids were you babysitting? Professor kids. Okay. Yeah, my professors, and then um, like in any good sales cycle, one, and also any healthy sales organization tying it all in. The number one best way you can get business is word of mouth. Mm -hmm. So then they started telling other professors or their other friends. Um, and then I, you know, was blessed enough to actually do a semester on Capitol Hill in, in Washington, D.C., um, at American University. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was in the Women in Politics program there. And I went to D.C. and I brought my little business with me. And they had, you know, back then we, I mean, we didn't have social media. We had all yeah. of these, like, messaging boards. Mm -hmm. So there was an internal messaging board that was just for babysitters. And I started to babysit for professors there. And then just, you know, random strangers. What happened is I started to get so much business because people were spreading the word. Right. Um, and I also made myself not under market, but definitely – um, competitive in my pricing. <laughs> yeah. um, and I started bringing my own supplies. And I was getting all of these clients that I started to hire other women to be babysitters. And so by the time I actually left American University, it wasn't even my home state, it wasn't even my home turf. Um, at that point, I had helped so many other college students that also needed a little bit of supplemental income. And I had just a circle of babysitters. I think there were probably between seven to nine of us at that point. And so what I would do is I would, you know, get all of the get all of the jobs and then I would outsource and I would manage that relationship mm -hmm. um, to make the client com comfortable, the parents comfortable, that they weren't getting me, but they were getting someone that was, you know, you very, exactly. Yeah. I would do the vetting and then I would take a percentage of their babysitting money. And this is all while you were in college. This is all while I was in college. So I was at American U. Uh, my, it was it my junior, my sophomore or junior year. Anyway, it was all when I was in college, but I started babysitting very early on when I was at Lafayette. Okay. So once you graduated, like what was your, your next step? Because you had this thriving business, you learned how to do your own laundry, you became self-sufficient, you have the independent woman thing going on mm -hmm. and you have all this pride and now what? 
Yeah, law school. Okay. I mean, there was a, a point in time, right? So I, I went from, so again, interesting to think about these origin stories. So I wasn't forced to do any <laughs> of these things yet. On my own, I decided, okay, I want to be a doctor. That didn't work out. And then on my own, I decided I want to go to law school. Yes. Um, so uh, what actually happened is I didn't go to law school, which probably was the best decision ever. Because, look, you're still... I'm not convinced that there are many 21, 20, 21 year olds out there that um, can confidently tell me that mm-hmm. what they want to do at 21 is what they will be doing at 31, for example, or something like that, right? Yeah, that's so true. And so um, I was just kind of going down the path, the safe, the safe zone path. It was very safe for me to go to law school because. That was the degree that I, one of the degrees that I, you know, got in college. It made perfect sense. And instead, um, instead, I actually moved to California right after college because I had a summer job. So I, I, I mentioned this maybe, but I'll amplify it here. And that is when I left Springfield for college, I never went back. Mm. And so, um, you know, I think one of my superpowers is intuition, but the other one would definitely be being resourceful. And so I always had an internship in those summers that paid me and fed me. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that the company that I'd been with those last two summers was called um, NSLC, National Student Leadership Conference. And so it paid me and it fed me. Mm-hmm. And it I lived in Virginia. I lived in California. It was a great opportunity. And so I went to work for them right after I graduated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was figuring things out, to be honest with you. I knew that law school was just not the not option wanted. for me. Yeah. And by the way, I also knew at that point, after failing in some things, I knew that I would not make it in law school. I just knew it. I, that's just not where my interests were. Um, anyway, moved to California and then um, several months later moved back to the East Coast and I moved to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually with, fell in love and that was, you know, my, my first husband, um, now my ex-husband. But that was a time in life where I never thought I would end up in New York. I just was like, oh, my gosh, it's so busy and yeah. kind of dirty. I don't understand <laughs> it. What's going on here? Um, I really was thinking about going into politics right. at that point. And so I was interviewing both D.C. and New York. And I will always tell anyone that love makes the world go round. So I went to where my world was going around. And that was New York, where my, where my love was. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then I went to corporate America. I mean, it's like, you know, it's probably the most cookie cutter part of my life was between the ages of maybe like 21 to 24, to be honest. I went to corporate America and I was, you know, at Saks Fifth Avenue. Right. At a time where the economy was doing great and I couldn't understand how all my colleagues were, you know, had these credit limits. They were wearing like, Prada and Gucci and Yves Saint Laurent and all Chanel, like all these things. And like my house account, I think had $300 on it just because, you know, I like, I couldn't, I just couldn't understand it. And, and, and I understood it very quickly because there were a lot of parents that were bankrolling rents and things like Uh, that. And for me, you know, I, you know, my father was actually still ill. So he, it took him, um, uh, he was with us for a few years. He Mm -hmm. eventually did pass away, but you know, from the time, you know, freshman year where I was like, it's time for me to pitch in that mentality never left me. 
I mean, thank God it actually never left me. But and that's, yeah. And that's important to note that once you have that mentality, it's really hard to turn it off. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I've had that mentality since I was 12. When I had my own experience with my mom and mm. colon cancer, it was mm. just like, all right, I got to make it. So here's what I have to do in order to be successful. Let's straighten arrow. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about where that shift occurred from the corporate to what you do now. Yeah. So that is actually the currency shift, if you yeah. ask me. It okay. happened when I left when I left Saks Fifth Avenue and went to my very first startup. Mm-hmm. And it happened pretty quickly. So um, in New York, at that time, retail was king. I mean, these yes. big department stores were just, I, they were, it was, you couldn't get around them. And something really interesting happened when I was at Saxon. You, it's it's public knowledge, but there was a, a massive lawsuit that came down um, about chargebacks, and I was pretty low on the totem pole. So I'll be honest <laughs> at that point. So none of this, none of this was going to touch me. Talk to them a little bit about what chargebacks are, just for yeah. the people who oh, are sure, not in the sure. industry. Yeah, sure. So um, in retail, when you have vendors uh, or designers um, mm-hmm. that are sending their products to you, um, they commit contractually to getting their goods to the stores in a certain amount of time with a little bit of leeway, but basically it has to hit the floor to sell. So mm-hmm. every day that you that you're missing the sell, and it could be because it's caught in customs, it could yes. be because the shipment was late, whatever that means. Um, every day that the your end user, that being the department store in this in this case, misses a sales day is revenue lost, mm-hmm. and so they charge the vendor. Mm-hmm. And there are all sorts of scenarios for chargebacks, but that's the one that most people know. Uh, so there were some um, uh, some shady chargebacks happening for <laughs> several years. And again, this is all public knowledge uh, at Saks, and it just happened to be when I was there. And when I say I was very low on the totem pole, I say that, and it is true in the corporate structure, but in my opinion, this is the best position to be in because you learn everything because you are doing all of the work and you yeah. are doing all of the scrappy work and you are doing the admin work, but you also are proving yourself and learning what, what gave me a, the strongest foundation in, um, in a quantitative and qualitative background as a salesperson to be able to think in both like empathy, business first, and also collaborative with your client, but to also understand the revenue and the numbers, mm-hmm. it makes a huge difference. Sachs gave that to me. So, and, and that's because I was doing the scrappy work. Yes. And I happened to be a part of the team um, where we were bringing in all these brand new vendors, this small little designer at the time uh, named Tori Birch, mm-hmm. that you know, she was in no other department stores. And we had a little shop for her. We were the first ones to bring her in. It didn't do great. She got out of the contract, went to Bloomingdale's. It blew up, right? Oh, wow. So I was a part of that group. So it was mm-hmm. exciting times. Well, it was also a dismal day, the day I came into work. And, you know, men in suits and briefcases came in and basically took out half of the half of my floor because they were involved knowingly and unknowingly in this this chargeback uh this chargeback situation um and i just i I perked up and i think most people would be like oh this is a great opportunity for me to like keep going up the ladder it makes it easier for me and for me i said this is a great opportunity for me to leave (laughs) (laughs) this is not a very nurturing environment and the truth is um i'd learned the structure 
fairly well at that point. And yeah. um, there's not a ton of innovation in in the corporate structure of retail. Mm-hmm. What there is, though, is a structure. So if you really right. want, you could just keep going step by step up that ladder. It's a, a pretty well-known fact. It's it's pretty difficult to be, especially back then, to be a black woman and become a buyer um, mm-hmm. in any one of these stores. So, so that, those were few and far between. Um, and so I started to look elsewhere and, and I went back to kind of my familiarity and I started reaching out to alum from Lafayette and uh, a, a woman, um, her name is Missy Godfrey. And I would say I would coin her as probably my first real mentor mm-hmm. um, because she was this dynamic woman, is this dynamic woman, I should say. She had two offices, one on Wall Street and then the other at, at a company called Spa Finder, this mm-hmm. like startup. And she said, you know, like your interests could kind of align with they're looking for salespeople. Why don't you talk to them? I'd never heard of the company could not understand what the internets meant selling <laughs> digital media. What is that? I don't get it, but it sounds cool and, this and is like kind the of early, edgy. The early 2000s? Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm like, this yeah. is cool and kind of edgy. Okay, fine. I'll have a conversation. And I w- remember going into uh, the into the office and there was like, there were no offices. It was just all tables, the open yes. concept. And my my interview was with the CEO. And I, I mean, I was just bowled over that I could have direct access. And, um, and yeah, I actually had no clue what I would be selling. I had no idea really what the company was becoming. Mm -hmm. Um, at the time, I think there were maybe 30, maybe 40, um, employees. Employees, And so I went from a behemoth retail company to a 40 person company. Um, and that was my first startup. And it's it's going from corporate structure to a startup structure is very different. It's kind of like a, a culture shock in itself, but then it's also like a I don't I don't know how to explain it exactly, but it's just a really interesting conflict a little bit because mm. you're so used to structure, you're used to all right, this is my straight path to the top. But when you go to a startup, it's like, eh, I can go anywhere. I yeah. can, if I want to do this, I could just do that. Absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about, like, what types of struggles or conflicts occurred going from a very structured environment to basically like a free-flowing yeah. environment. Well, so, you know, I think um, – Structure, though I had it in court, you know, it it was the path that I went down. Structure never really held a lot of water for me, if that Mm -hmm. made sense. Because um, can I say that in many instances, I was also um, blazing little trails. Yes. And then people were following me down those trails. Or I would blaze the trail and then, like, my spirit would come after. But, like, something (laughs) else, you know, I was never – I was – I was at the forefront, but I I think also always um, hitching my wagon on to things that I could be more of my authentic self in. And I, you know, I'm always, I didn't have this language before a few years ago, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that meant, but I did know, and I was starting to form then, especially going to my first startup, what I was good at, what I was passionate uh, at, and then where I could make money. Mm -hmm. So, 
I'll answer your question directly now, which is, yeah, like not having structure for people who are used to structure and who thrive in structure, Mm -hmm. going to a a seed or series A or early tech startup is probably not the best fit because there is very little structure. Things change every single day. You have to be kind of okay flying by the seat of your pants, but also very focused on the mission and Mm -hmm. your impact because, um, you know, your impact at an early stage startup is as impactful as your leadership team if there is even a leadership team, right, Right. that's really formed. Um, And so for me, my biggest conflict was, okay, well, I – don't know how to do these things. So it was my very first sales job. Mm -hmm. So it's not that I didn't, you know, I really just didn't know how to sell. And by the way, I also didn't know what I was selling. So online media, like ads, that's what we were selling at the time. That was brand new. I mean, I think Google had just come out with their um, pay-per-click model. Like Mm -hmm. this was all new. Plus we were convincing clients who were buying, you know, one page ads in all these magazines for $30,000 with no measurables behind it, right? right? You have no idea if it was that ad, this ad, whatever, and telling them, you know what, let's do these things called banners, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) online, on the internet, (laughs) and selling that. Um, But I think also because it was so new for me and also so new in general General, in the world, it actually, you know, we everyone was learning at the same time. But um, I love your point. It, it, it is a very good point, which is uh, you, the level of autonomy that I had matched my personality and matched me so well. And what I learned very early on is that sales wasn't all about, like, you know, filling out some sales sheet and getting commission. It was about the human to human connection. Mm-hmm. It's about influence. And by the way, influencing in um, a really transparent and honest way, which is something that is, it was really important for me to learn, I think, early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the thing that I loved about, about sales and getting into tech sales specifically is that it was really innovative. Mm-hmm. I was able to go out there and say, you know, you may not have ever heard of my company, but you know me, and also this is what we're doing. This is how mm-hmm. we're changing the world. This is how we're being impactful. And at Spa Finder, it actually was very much a human sale because we were talking about wellness, right? Mm-hmm. And what I was selling was, don't you want to spread this message around the world? Um, and I was very lucky because this autonomy also allowed me to shine in a way that would have never happened at any other Type big corporate, corporate company. Yeah. Um, I ended up going in into my first sales sales position on the B2B side and then switched to the B2C side in less than a year. I was promoted there. Talk to a little bit about what B2B and what B2C is. Yeah, so B2B is business to business and B2C is business to consumer, which back then was very straightforward. Mm-hmm. Now we have all sorts of things, right? Mm-hmm. We, have, we have B2B to C, business to business to consumer. Mm-hmm. Um we have SaaS sales, service as a, sales as a service, or solutions as a service, sorry. Um, and that's a lot of people know SaaS companies now, right? Yeah. And we have apps now. I mean, these things didn't really exist. And I'm a little bit aging myself, but it wasn't that long ago. I mean, it was probably like 14-ish years ago. Um, 
but uh, but yeah, so I went over to the consumer side and then I was managing huge accounts like, you know, Hilton's and Ritz Carlton's and Canyon Ranches. And I was also at that point leading our entire West Coast. And so I was flying from New York out to the West Coast somewhere um, every other week or so. And then, you know, uh, we really wanted to dive into the Central and South America market. And no one really wanted to take that on. And mm-hmm. it was the first time that I started to say yes to things that people were saying no to. Mm-hmm. And I built that Central and South America business. And I was so proud of that. I mean, I just, the work that I did with that company was really the the entry point for me to go anywhere else in my, in my tech, com- in my tech, um, in my tech professional life. And you were the only black woman at this company or were there others? Oh, (laughs) that's such a good question because by the way, um, I don't want to say that you become desensitized. You just become used to not seeing people that look like you. So, you know, I just, to fast forward anecdotally, um, I was at South by Southwest Mm -hmm. um, co-hosting the Black Tech Meetup with um, with the Avant Garde Network, um, which is a fantastic black professional network here in New York. And uh, I just anecdotally said, you know, when I started coming to South by 10 years ago, I would like walk by a shop and if there was a reflection and I saw myself, I thought it was another black person. I got really excited, but it was just <laughs> me. Um, and so, yes, I was, I was actually, okay, so I was one of the only black women at that company. I want to say I might have been the first, but I don't want to give myself that title without it being too accurate. There was a second woman that came on, though, um, Mm -hmm. not in a leadership or management position at that point. But when she came on, oh, she came in as our intern, actually. Mm. And coincidentally, years later, when I was at Guilt Group, she was also at Guilt Group. So, mm-hmm. you know, we both actually ended up staying in tech. But, um, but yeah, I was one of the only. But I've always been one of the only. Yes, even from uh, uh, private school. Mm-hmm. Yes. So talk to us a little bit about how you transitioned from working at this particular startup to the next started startup to actually doing your own thing. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a pretty quick slope. And, and I'll... I'll I'm going to go through it quickly on purpose because mm-hmm. I think the the biggest themes that I want to pull out for you and and everyone listening and even for myself because I I do um I do these uh I do reflection exercises and I I do like to do them because I think it it reminds me of a journey that has been and then where I am today and where I'm going right, right. yes um so I left Spa Finder I actually moved to San Francisco mm-hmm. in between that time. Went to San Francisco. I was there for about six months or so. And I came back and I had coffee with a friend of mine. And at the time, um, he had just launched a company called Jet Setter, which it was this tiny little travel company taking on, you know, saber holding. So like Expedia, mm-hmm. and, you know, Travelocity, that whole world. And it was under this umbrella of this other company that had just started about a year prior to that called Guilt Group. Mm-hmm. And I was a member of Guilt Group, and so it was hard for me to connect the two. I was like, yeah, but that's fashion, clothes, sample sale online at a discount, and then travel, right? <laughs> I, I don't get it. And and I sat down with him, and what I realized very quickly is that both companies – well, the umbrella company, but both of both entities 
were filled, I mean, chalk filled with innovators, doers, builders, mm-hmm. foundation builders. And um, at that point, I had been at SpotFinder probably for about three and a half, four years. And we had also moved into the SaaS space with another product called SpaBooker. And um, so I was, I don't want to say it was itching. I was actually very happy because now I didn't have to fly across country to the West Coast. I was living there. Um, But it was one of those situations where I sat down with him and he told me this idea, told me this concept. And then he was like, please come join my team. Like you've been, which made sense because at that Mm -hmm. point I was pretty well known in the industry doing really good, impactful work. Um, and kind of just knew it like the back of my hand. And he he just said, would you consider moving back to New York? And I was like, uh, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible opportunity. Right. But absolutely not. Like, I just moved across the continent six months ago. Um, and he goes, okay, fine. I figured you would say that. But we just launched another company. And it's in beta. And there's only a few employees right now here in New York. And I think they're looking to launch the West Coast, so San Francisco and L.A. Can Give me two minutes. Talk to the president. And the president came in. And, yes, it was a very small team. And um, he said, so, yeah, so this is what we're doing. It's called Guilt City. And we're focused on experiences. And that was all I knew about the company. The rest of our conversation was really around – like the kind of person that would succeed, the kind of people that they were looking for. Mm-hmm. There was this, you know, pa- when passion meets passion, you could see it. But besides just passion, because I think um, especially women get put in this pigeonhole. If you're passionate, you're unfocused. You just have all these other things that you're doing mm-hmm. or your brain is going. And that is simply not true. Yes. Um, but he was really passionate about what they were building. And frankly – he was also really transparent that he didn't really know what they were building, right? <laughs> and that he needed people who could contribute to that vision mm. and make it happen. And if it's the one thing that I know for sure, and that always has been, is collaboration constantly um, is the best way to getting things done along with conflict. Conflict mm. is okay. And I will tell you that I, I think we had that conversation on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. I had the offer by Friday. I jumped on that rocket ship very early on. I was employee number 11 there. So, like, very, yeah. very early on. The first one on the West Coast built out those markets, both L.A. and San Francisco, then focused on San Francisco, moved back to New York uh, when, my, when, when uh, my GM at the time asked me to come back and build out tertiary markets within inside mm-hmm. sales team. So I came back to New York about three years into being in Silicon Valley, which was a tremendous opportunity and mm-hmm. also awesome just to be in it, right, yeah. in Silicon Valley. At the same time, the tech community here in New York was booming and is booming mm-hmm. and I think rivals any kind of tech hub that we can even talk about in the U.S. now. Um, and I built all of those markets and then I crashed and burned and I was burned out, like completely burned out. I was there for about four and a half years Mm -hmm. and there was an opportunity to exit. We were also going through, so kind of a little bit like Saks, you know, what happened is we went, it was a very high, high, high in the tsunami and then the bubble completely burst and, Mm. you know, retailers learned how to market uh, better to their customers. They basically took our model 
which is to me the most flattering thing when mm-hmm. what you are doing actually changes and disrupts an entire industry and influences in a way that makes it more accessible for most people mm-hmm. um and that's what had happened and so i uh i i took some time um i had at guilt when when you were there for a few years maybe three years you got a three-week sabbatical. When you're there for five years, you got a four-week sabbatical. So I was actually there for four years, and I finally took my three-week sabbatical mm-hmm. before I left. And I went and I volunteered in, in uh, Tanzania and Africa. And I always said if I worked for a company that would allow me some time, I would go and focus on volunteering outside of my community because I do a lot of that here. Yeah. And I worked with women um, with this great organization called Cross-Cultural Solutions in the bush specifically for them to get microfinancing mm-hmm. um, for their small businesses. And that usually included like raising chickens and geese and pigs and um, seeing the infrastructure of these tribal women. I mean, I just, and I was totally off the grid yeah. and it completely changed my perspective. It was very hard for me to come back and sell luxury experiences at that <laughs> point. And just like anything else in life, right? There yeah. was an it, there was an exit. There was an opportunity, another, you know, kind of another little path for me to blaze down. Um, and and I left and I took eight months off, went to a pure tech company, um, which is very interesting. But um, you know, I think ultimately I knew that I needed to do my own thing and I didn't know what that what it looked like mm-hmm. until I started going through my divorce and then I realized oh wait so I've had all these professional opportunities mm-hmm. here is the personal life transition after being with the same person for 12 years mm-hmm. and also in ways in many ways not remaining the same person me myself right. for all those years let me really consider what life looks like for me now. So this occurred after you felt burnt out. Oh, yeah. I mean, I burnt out from guilt and then went to a, a, a different company. Mm-hmm. Um, I took eight months off, though. Yeah. And that was really essential. Um, so I now, so I cre- I've, I have some really interesting original content, but I, throughout the years, I've, I've been an advisor at a couple of um, tech accelerators here in, in New York. And I realized that this was happening not just to founders, but to a bunch of tech executives, right? right? Like you can only build, and at that point I built four startups from the same exact stage. Mm-hmm. It takes a tremendous amount of energy out of you, um, which is why it's so important to connect to something mm-hmm. that you really believe in. And also, by the way, that culturally, especially the leadership team or the team in general, that you can stand because <laughs> you you know yeah. you want to win with them, but when you lose, you also want to lose with respect and integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, no, I I that burnout was was very real, and I teach a I teach a workshop now on it's called burnout rehab. And that most people in the U.S., they're actually taking somewhere between two to three days off on average between gigs. Mm -hmm. Most executives are able to take about 30 days off. But if you put that in a lifetime of working, Mm -hmm. that's not very much time. I mean, this goes far, far, far beyond just what burnout means. It goes into, you know, parental leave in our country and like all other things that we could socially be doing better for for family and and for the professional, but um, you know, I 
burnout rehab is all about unlocking a part of your brain that you would not be using in your daily work. So do other things. And for, for me, so if I'm fast forwarding a little bit, um, for me, when I was going through, through my divorce, it was really interesting because the company that I was at, I ended up leaving um, and, and exiting that company. And within a month, uh, was going through an active divorce. Mm. Um, and so here I was, right, not working, right? So there wasn't this identity pull there. Right. And also going through a, what turned into a, a pretty contentious, unfortunately, divorce. And I was kind of standing on my own two feet and saying, all right, it's time for me to take my own advice. Mm-hmm. So let me unlock the part of my brain. <laughs> That I wouldn't be doing in tech sales, growth, management, innovation, all those things. And that thing that came to me was interior design, which is nothing that what HeartSpace does today. (laughs) But I'm so glad that I did because what happened is that I I ended up designing um, a few different brownstones in Brooklyn where I was living at the time. Mm -hmm. And it kind of just put it, it put an entirely new creative energy into me that I didn't know that I had. But I think even more importantly, kind of even gave me the confidence to say, okay, this is kind of like me starting my own thing again, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think I can do this. So let me just figure out what that looks like. Um, And, and that's, that's where HeartSpace was born out of. All right, perfect. So we talk a lot about mental health on the podcast because me personally I think it's essential to anyone and everyone to have like a a delicate balance between their mental health their emotional health and then what they're doing full-time and it sounds like you have um, already like created something around mental health Mm -hmm. so talk to us a little bit more about what you do personally outside of unlocking um, the part of the brain that you don't use, or if that is essentially what you do for your mental health and just balance. Because yeah. I can only imagine, like, everything that you were going through. Because I have, like, two step-parents. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a stepdad, I have a stepmom. So I've seen the divorce aspect, mm-hmm. and I know how grueling that can be. Mm-hmm. But how did you take care of yourself yeah. during that time period? Yeah. And then how do you continue to take time, well, take care of yourself now? Oh, I love this question. I love the question because I can be really honest about it. So Mm -hmm. um, a little bit of my own personal business. I mean, hey, y'all, right? We're we're here to be very, (laughs) to be, to be, to be honest. And I think um, for me also, I'm very open about my divorce story because um, I felt very isolated at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it's not always just about divorce, right? So I say, look, I was 50% of a failed marriage. And that is true. That is just the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other side of this is is that there was um, a, an affair and a child that I had no idea about. Mm-hmm. And so when I, when I did find that out, I found out all by myself. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was never admitted to me until we actually ended up you know, going through the court system, which was unfortunate because I just wanted to show up authentically. I really wanted this other person to show up authentically, Mm -hmm. but you cannot control what other people do, which leads me to my whole point about, or your whole point, I should say, about mental health, because what do you do? And trauma is universal. I don't care what it looks like. It could be divorce. It could be abuse. It could be, uh, childhood trauma, it could be anything. Trauma to me is universal. Mm -hmm. And 
we are never so isolated. There is always someone else that has gone through the same thing or something very similar. But for me, I knew that I needed a third party, very strong sounding board because I'm a pretty assertive person when it really comes down to it. And assertive in my emotions and also I am a cancer, by the way. But (laughs) so we it's just part of my DNA. I'm assertive in my emotions, but can also be assertive in things like um, you know, my point of view, my opinion, and you know, just in general, things like that. And so Mm -hmm. I needed for myself to seek therapy immediately because what I I knew and I couldn't figure it out, but like at the time before I got to therapy, but what I knew for sure is that I absolutely didn't want to feel like I was alone. Yes. I didn't want to feel a sense of embarrassment. And interestingly, I did not want to feel victimized. Like I didn't mm-hmm. want to play a victim role. So I actually went to therapy. Um, and when I went to therapy on my own, um, I was coming out of a place where I had surrendered to the fact that I was giving my ex-partner every opportunity to be honest with me, mm-hmm. even though I knew what the truth was, and he never showed up that way. But instead, I needed someone to continue to remind me um, that sh- how I show up is all I was in control of. Yes. And that actually very much helped me, not just through my divorce in, in, in that time, but it is actually where I started to learn a lot of the energy language and mm-hmm. living that I do now, right? It is when, you know, I surrendering to knowing that I can only control how I show up um, and being your most authentic self and figuring out what that means for yourself. My mental health is very, very much grounded in therapy. Uh, And it's not traditional. You know, traditional therapy looks at conflict um, therapy, which is like conflict resolution from childhood and those kinds of things through your whole life. You know, when I describe my childhood to my therapist, she's like, okay, well, we've just saved about, you know, (laughs) six months of therapy because you had a great childhood. You know, that's not what we need to focus on. And that that is actually true. Um, But I actually focused on myself in therapy. And it's okay to be like selfish and self-centered when it comes to protected and safe spaces. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, going to, I ended up going to court for a year straight, which shouldn't have happened. But the truth is, is that I was always just showing up the best that I could, the best that I could be. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and not trying to control anything else. So therapy is a big part of my life. Um, It was then it still is now. I don't, want to gloss over though the importance of also um of being responsible for yourself if that makes sense even when you feel crippled and it feels like you can't um the one thing that I do do and I hope this is helpful for someone is um you know on a daily basis I don't have I don't know that I would call them affirmations but I definitely do a Simone you're confident and like move on with my day or you know Simone <laughs> yes. like you re- you caught that train like good yes, on you like yes. the little wins and and that's how I've always by the way managed my teams mm-hmm. in little wins that's how I currently you know manage and approach my relationships with with my clients mm-hmm. who are 
I mean, they are large, very well-known tech clients that we have. And to go in there and talk about, you know, heart space being the place in which you can do all of these things. And then guess what? By the way, also drive revenue, you know, increase diversity, inclusion, look at how that dynamically works in a sales team to increase revenue for the entire organization, mm-hmm. right? Like that's the work that we do. And then we do the real work, right? We're building sales stacks and CRMs, and I have coders and developers in mm-hmm. my collective. And um, by the way, they're all women. Well, there's one man now, but there's they were all yeah. women for a long time. You know, so the my mental health um, and focusing on that in the small wins every single day collectively, for me anyway, is how I keep myself going. But I also take those days or even those weeks, by the way, where I am doing nothing, Mm. if that makes sense. And everyone has a different way of doing things. I can't meditate. I'm not able to stay quiet long enough. I've tried. Um, (laughs) I do work out quite a bit. Um, You know, I'm this year, I I do one triathlon triathlon a year. My first one um, was two years ago. So I'm looking at doing my third this year. It's, It's an Olympic triathlon. So, you know, those things are important. Yes. A hundred percent. Like I, I love my therapist that I go to just because it keeps a balance and the stuff that you want to tell your friends because they, they know you at certain times in your life. So sometimes that image of who you were when they bonded with you is the image that they stick with sometimes. So for me, it's important to have somebody that knows nothing about me, Mm -hmm. but can tell me how to make myself better. Yeah. Like, I love where you said you have to be responsible for yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's super, super important. So transitioning, I look at you as a disruptor in the tech space, right? You have your own company, HeartSpace, that has been just phenomenal in the tech industry, helping tech companies build infrastructure from the ground up. Uh, So I appreciate you telling your story on the show and having this time with currency shift. Uh, But I want to talk about your social currency a little bit. So with currency shift, it's all about meeting with first only your disruptives like yourself and helping you tell your story about how you're moving forward, uh, whether you're the first, the only, or if you're disrupting a whole industry. But it's also how you use your social currency to do so. So social currency is building social networks to gain access, influence, resources, and networking in the digital space that affects a person online and offline. On LinkedIn, you have over 500 connections and over 2,188 followers. So it looks like you're using your LinkedIn quite frequently to build your um, social currency. But talk to us on how social media has influenced or empowered your business. Yeah, sure. Um, so <laughs> this is this is a really good and timely question for me because um, I'm doing all sorts of revisions when it comes to what my social currency means. I love that term, by the way, social currency. I think it makes, you know, a lot of sense because it, tr- I mean, it truly is these days, right? Mm-hmm. I'll start with LinkedIn. LinkedIn um, was always easy for me. And I say easy only because it was easy for me to understand, right? right? Yeah. It's a professional network, full stop, period. <laughs> <laughs> there was nothing more that I really needed to understand about LinkedIn. Right. And so, 
it was so black and white for me um, that when I joined LinkedIn, it was fantastic because I can really focus on what I'm doing there professionally. Of course, it's grown in so many different ways um, and it's since been acquired, but I mean, it was very straightforward. I focus on LinkedIn um, mainly because I'm actually a pretty public private person, if, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. 100%. And I, you know, my, my personal Instagram is private. My Instagram is private. I don't have an Instagram for my business ent- entities. Um, I think Instagram is doing a really good job of allowing folks to build business, you know, very obviously on Instagram, mm-hmm. but also not for just these direct-to-consumer, like, fashion brands or product, right? I, I find that um, there are more and more people that are taking their consulting agencies or whatever their companies are, mm-hmm. you know, to Instagram. And I see them very differently, right? So, like, Instagram, to me, tells a very different story than even a Facebook um, and definitely than LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And LinkedIn has just been the place where I tell everyone to go. So there are two big things here. Um, one, and I would encourage everyone to do this just environmentally, I got rid of business cards years ago, like right, seven yeah. to eight years ago. I haven't had a business card in many, many years. Um, and it, it does a couple of things. For a woman especially, standing up, introducing yourself, and then not testing the other person, but having that person really focus on you um, without a barrier or something else identifying you like a business card means uh, it's so much to me. Um, the second thing is like the awkward business card pull, you know, when someone's like, oh, yeah. let me give you your business card. <laughs> you know, I, I typically say to them. I, I will take your business card, but I'm just going to connect with you on LinkedIn if you're on LinkedIn. And if not, I'll shoot you an email, but I'm going to recycle your card. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's my second big thing is, like, let's protect the environment. I mean, there is a lot happening these days with paper. So mm-hmm. and we can do our parts to just not um, – and business cards, little tiny business cards are not the way that I that I just I feel like saving some footprint there for me anyway uh, means a lot. And actually, I don't go on business trips anymore. I'm bringing home stacks of business cards or bringing them with me and then forgetting them. So, um, you know, digital connections professionally, very interesting for me and will remain interesting to me. And that's what I that's where I tell people to connect with me. And I'm really good on LinkedIn. I will mm-hmm. respond to you pretty immediately and then move that over to email. Um, so going back to Instagram though, the reason that this is interesting to me now is so, so HeartSpace is doing really well and and we're growing by the way. And, you know, the collective itself is Mm -hmm. shifting a little bit because, um, and I do want to put this out there because, you know, I, the way that our kind of economy is going and, and, and what being employed means, um, Everyone in the collective is actually fully employed. They have full-time jobs, mm-hmm. and they're a director level or above, but they have full-time jobs in which they are able to take on other challenges because, one, they want to stay competitive in their own markets. Two, they want to stay really sharp. And three, they want supplemental income. Mm-hmm. So I bring them in and out of engagements, and it works tremendously well, and my clients are very aware of, of, of that. And so that has been um, impactful not just for HeartSpace but also – the clients in which we're working. 
Um, but I'm thinking of making the collective actually more of a, kind of like a, a socialist community, right? Yeah. So that, you know, we're actually doing a heavier rev share if you're bringing in new business and that there is an opportunity for you to grow your own business. And, you know, you have mm-hmm. a point person like me always on site with the client, but kind of directing traffic where we need to. So LinkedIn, again, is one of those places where, like, I'm able to, you know, see the talent and be connected with talent that way. But Instagram is most likely the place where um, I'm going to be building my new company. I'm always on stealth in something, (laughs) by the way. I love it, though. And I'm in stealth on a really really, really good thing right now that has been brewing for, I would say, the past four or five years. And just, I think the time in the space, um, also med tech has really, you know, come to the forefront and it's, uh, it's focused on women's health. It's Mm -hmm. very niche, super interesting, um, definitely impactful. I would say disruptor, Cannot tell you exactly what it is. That's fine. We'll but stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned. Season three. Yeah. You're, wel- <laughs> you're welcome back. <laughs> uh, but Instagram will most likely be the place where that company really takes off in, in terms of social currency. Excellent. 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 So when you're networking and, and connecting with these women and the guy that's a part of the collective, is it mainly through LinkedIn and then shifting to email? Is that kind of the starting point? Yeah. So I've been really lucky in that when I started HeartSpace, I sent out one email to maybe 120 folks, uh, mm-hmm. people I've worked with for many years, you know, past clients and friends, family. And that's where all of our businesses come from. And then I started the collective because, you know, you're always stronger as a team, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, uh, you want to you you want a team and you also want a different perspective. You want diverse perspectives to solve problems. And I'm all about that. So um, I started to just reach out to women that I've worked with before. And then those women put me in touch with other women in their circles. You see mm-hmm. how that works? Yeah, the, the relationship. You, know, yes. you want to keep it as much in the ecosystem as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the one guy came from the other women. And so I was like, okay, fine. But like, you yes. know, it really, that's, um, that's how I've found everyone in the collective. Um, but I'm always looking on LinkedIn, by the way. I'm always interested in seeing what other people are doing. And mm-hmm. I'm taking, I've, I've, taken this on in 2019 to be less of a voyeur and more active in not just likes and things, but actually like, you know, using my voice, which, um, which I think is my instrument to, Mm -hmm. to, to, to be involved in communities that I'm putting my energy into, which is why I've also dropped a bunch of, you know, networking things that I've done, right? Mm -hmm. Because there comes a point, first of all, we only have but so much time in the day and our time is the most valuable asset that we have. Um, And and second of all, I think it's, uh, it it becomes less about the transaction of things Mm -hmm. Um, and transactional relationships are just not so interesting to me anymore. Um, I'm just getting old. I think that's <laughs> the other side of it, right? Uh, but but with wisdom, I, I mean, you have power, and with with power, it is also the power to choose. Yes, a hundred percent. I love I love that transition that you have there with the power to choose and and wisdom, which brings me to my question for you: If you had an opportunity 
to put one piece of advice out of everything that you've learned from your childhood, from watching your, your parents, from your college experience to everything that you've done thus far, if you had an opportunity to put one piece of advice on a post-it on your desk, mm-hmm. what would that be? Yeah. Um, so the one post-it, it's two words, and it would be stay curious. Mm. Stay curious. Um, curiosity is the thing to me that <laughs> – so you know the curiosity killed the cat, right? There's, <laughs> there's that saying that is very true. But yes. look, if the cat never tried to begin with, right? And I'm sure that cat tried a lot of things <laughs> um, before fi- finding – or be- before coming to, to its final fate – Curiosity, and I've heard other people use that. I mean, look, I was also going to say, okay, stay resilient. But I actually don't know that resiliency is um, – it's it's not innate. I know that for, for sure. Um, but I do know that curiosity is something that challenges mindsets. It challenges yourself. It challenges the people around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and though, you know, challenging – things can it sounds exhausting um you know it it actually i think very much um allows you to pursue evolution in ways that you just didn't know and so curiosity is my best advice and by the way i any generation when i'm you know talking to a group of college students i'm telling them to fail and stay curious when i'm talking to you know, folks, my experience and age, I'm saying the same thing. And even older, when I talk to the elders, like, you know, folks who are much older and also more experienced than me, they always say, like, you know, I wish I had done this thing if I had just opened my mind a little bit. Or I did do this thing because I kept an open mind. And it, to me, just translates to being curious. And I Mm -hmm. think especially... um, you know, just going back to being, you know, first generation, also being a black woman, I'm half black, I'm half Indian, there's, you know, a lot going on there. And I have an interesting, you know, background in childhood and adult years and things. To me, you know, curiosity also just takes down barriers. So I'm not telling myself no, most of the time, it it is a rare occasion that I'm saying no, I have a friend that says, um, that, that says to me, gosh, you're just like one of the most confident people that I know. <laughs> like, how do you do that? But but I think it's, it's you know, confidence is, for me, also goes hand in hand with curiosity. It doesn't mean that I'm, that I'm confident because I know I'm going to fill in the blank with some sort of successful thing at the end. Mm-hmm. It means I'm just staying curious and I just, you know, I'm not necessarily following the other sheep. I'm going to um, I'm going to try and figure things out, you know, on my own and then listen to really good counsel, collaborate together and then kind of get to where I'm going. But yeah, stay curious. Put that on your computer, laptop, <laughs> post-it thing. <laughs> Put it on the post-it yeah. and stick it to your laptop yeah. or your computer. <laughs> no, I believe in staying curious. Like, um, curiosity killed the cat. That's one of those those things where it took that cat nine lives. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Before it actually died. I mean, yeah. just digging a little th- uh, deeper. It could yeah. be the drink that I'm drinking, but yeah. <laughs> it's, it's more about like continuously trying new things 
experience and looking at things from a different perspective and just being curious about why something is or how it happens or how it develops. A hundred percent there with you on that. Um, I also just want to add one other thing because I do think, especially for women, so important, and that is be okay with um, with going up to someone, right? Yeah. And I, I'm saying for this professionally fine, but also personally. It's also the thing I'd say, like dating, 50% of the time you go. Like that's okay or even more. Don't put stats behind it. Mm-hmm. But But being curious also allows you to reach out to people and – and say things or ask for things or connect in a way that you wouldn't before. And actually at the very similar, the same event that we met at, um, a young woman who just moved to New York. Mm-hmm. I won't I won't say her name here. I don't have permission, but um, I think that she would appreciate that, the fact that I am in awe of her right now. Bec- and we've only had one conversation, and that is because she saw me speak she got in touch with me after she didn't introduce herself to me at all um, at the event, got in touch with me via LinkedIn, which is always my instruction. After we set up um, a time to speak, it was like probably three weeks ago or something. So the day came and I, because of my curiosity, I don't need to have an itinerary or schedule of mm-hmm. things that we're talking to. I'm always trying to nurture my network, grow the network, mm-hmm. you know, keep it in the ecosystem. I actually had no idea this young woman had just moved to New York. She works for a very large consulting agency. Mm-hmm. She's brilliant. And she just wanted 30 minutes of my time to introduce herself, to t- to say to me, this thing resonated with me that you said, mm-hmm. you know, on the panel. Like, I just wanted to talk to you about that. And I was so free and willing to give unsolicited and solicited advice. <laughs> and, you know, eventually as I was talking, I just I just said to her, I am so glad you did this. I don't think enough people are doing this still. And I know right. we, we're coming off of social currency, but there's analog currency too, which is that human-to-human connection. And I um, I always tell people with their mentors, like, be kind of promiscuous with it. Just have a ton of mentors. Like, don't just <laughs> like choose be two or three of them. Like, yeah. oh, my goodness. Like, just go after it. I think it's it's really important. Um, but actually, I mean, in that moment, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I hope she asks me to be her mentor because, like, I would totally do that, right? Yes. But it's only because this woman actually connected and she's not asking for anything. She's not, you know, it's not transactional. She's really doing what I was doing. 17 years ago coming to New York, right? Yeah, and Connecting. I, think, I think that's important for people to note that, like, yes, social currency, it's about your network and how you're using it um, and how you're sharing your connections with people to other people. But an important part of it is that relationship building and maintaining it. That's right. right? Because once you have that connection, how are you fostering it? Right. Like having coffees, having events at night, inviting people to socialize is all about building, maintaining and fostering that relationship, which is all the same thing. But you want to make sure that you're having those genuine connections with people, whether you're sliding in their messages or DMs where you're establishing the relationship with a 30 minute conversation. But it's also maintaining it down the road. So continuously doing that. Uh, Because one of the things that I learned early on, uh, one of my mentors 
or like one of the people that I had on my board of directors. Um, and a board of directors is just, I look at myself as a business and I think everybody should look at themselves as a business. And you have a board of directors, people that you can go to that have nothing to do with your industry for the most part, but they are experienced individuals that can help answer questions and guide you in the right direction. You don't have to take the advice, but it's good to have people in your circle where you can bounce ideas off of that have already been there, done that. And so one of the best pieces of advice that I received was, hey, you have us, but don't just come to us when you have questions. Like send us updates, like maybe like once a month on how you're doing, just in general, because we care. We don't just want to be like this little resource that you tap into only when you need something. Because we have great relationships, we also care. So, like, send us a note once a month saying, hey, this is how I'm doing. How are you? Right? That's right. Yeah. And really what they're getting at is we're invested in you. Mm -hmm. Right? And so because we're invested in you professionally, that always is always going to also mean personally as well. We're Mm -hmm. invested in, to your point, your brand, your business, what you are doing, um, and and, – that investment isn't one to be taken lightly because going back to my, 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 you know, your time is your most valuable asset. Um, you know, once you can understand that kind of like currency in your own life, mm-hmm. you really understand what it means when you're wasting time on things, on relationships, yes. on friendships, on, uh, inefficiencies. Mm-hmm. Um, it, becomes magnified in your life and how you're showing up during those times of magnifications to then make these little tweaks, these little shifts, or these swinging pendulum changes in your life mm-hmm. really, you know, they really matter. Um, and I love that you have a board of directors that's for, you know, for you, right? Yes. Um, and also, I think it's that, that so Networking is one thing. Nurture is a whole mm-hmm. other thing, right? And nurturing doesn't necessarily, and that's why, you know, the transactional part of relationships, when you can really understand what that means, um, it also means that there's, it's not always going to be a two-way street. You may all, you may be asking more of mm-hmm. at certain points or vice versa, but the nurture part of it helps yes. when you're actually going down the road of, okay, I'm asking 90% of the things <laughs> from you right now, and I'm very aware of that. But I'm hoping the nurture part of it really matters. And then also the nurture part of it just means, you know, and frankly, I say that I, you know, turn down clients all the time. I really want to work, and I want my team working with people and with teams where we can be impactful, but frankly, I just like you. Like, Mm -hmm. I want to work with you. I want to invest somehow in this problem that we're solving together, but, you know, people invest in people. Exactly. Exactly. So we've come to the point where we have our speed round. Uh, This round is I ask a question and you give the first thing that comes to mind. It's not a lot of thought that goes into it on on either end, but it's something good, quick, and efficient. So do you set this up so that we definitely have a morning, like, mimosa beverage type thing before (laughs) we get to the speed round? Okay, I'll try try to keep up with the speed here. Yes, yes. All right, so what gets you out of bed? Oh, um... 
what gets me out of bed literally is the is working out. Working out? <laughs> yeah. I work out first thing in the morning. All right. Well, what is your favorite band? Oh, this is a good or group. one. Yeah. Oh, it has to be a band or group. It can't be a person. Okay, it fine. can be. It can okay, be. Okay, well, so my As fav- long as it's music affiliated. Yeah, sure. Nina Simone. Ah. Um, yeah, Nina Simone. All right. Favorite drink? My favorite drink. Okay, so like my death row drink would definitely be a Tangare tonic. Mm. All right. Death row. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Role model. Oh, Gosh. All right. Well, my role models are consistent, but I also, depending on the day. Um, so today, right now, my role model uh, is my brother, mm. Chris Chadden. Yeah. Luxury item. Oh, that's not fair. Okay, listen. <laughs> that's that. It really that's a speed. Okay, fine. Um. So the the latest luxury item. The, my dream or one that I own right now? Whatever. I'm really putting myself it's, out here. It's there. up to you. <laughs> okay, well, so here's the thing. Uh, because I spent so many years in luxury, mm-hmm. and and I understand the cost margin, <laughs> the yeah. cost benefit of these things, um, I will say I don't have a specific luxury um, item, but I did just totally treat myself to um, uh, Yves Saint Laurent, uh, crossbody because I'm very good at keeping purses for many many years and my last one was like ten years old and it was time, but but my real luxury is um is seeing the world seeing for the, sure so travel is travel all right favorite food ooh all right so um so it's my mom's escovish fish for sure mm-hmm. but we're Jamaican right so you can't just have one thing on the plate so it's escovish fish curry goat those are my two favorite things. Um, and then her fried chicken. Nice. Honor to my dad's south, his southern roots for sure. Okay. Favorite country to visit? Oh, goodness. Okay. So um, my most favorite country that I've visited, um, this, this one is a little tough. Uh, I would say... For sure was Chile. Okay. Close, close second. Yeah. Close second, because it's fresh in my mind, for sure. Mexico City, which isn't a country, obviously, but Mexico City is amazing. Okay. All right. Best way to give back. Yeah. So, um, you know, we. I will always say, if you can't give your time, give money. Mm. To the things that you really care about. Retirement place. My retirement place. Well, I mean, <laughs> currently it's in paradise. So I have a, I have a, I have a new love. He's he's amazing, and um, he says New Jersey is his paradise. So I, <laughs> I don't know if that's gonna be where we retire. Um, but but I've never thought about my retirement place. Um, so I don't know. So I'm going to think about where I am right now and what makes me really happy. And, and, and that is currently, uh, yep. New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cause you, you said earlier, your love is your world, right? Yeah. 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 All right. Cartoon. Oh, okay. So, um, the boondocks. Ah, excellent. Mm-hmm. Drama. 
drama, TV drama. Whatever. Oh. I mean, look, I, I'm i The Wire, hands down, will the always wire. be, like, the best written show, followed very closely by Breaking Bad. Mm. All right. Comedy. Oh. Okay, so um, Richard Pryor, anything. Good pick. Uh, what is happiness? Yeah, happiness. Um, I think that's I think that's pretty simple for me. Anyway, happiness is um, following my intuition. Mostly, it is really following my intuition, acting from my intuition, believing my interest, my intuition, trusting my intuition. Fair. Is there anything that you would like the listeners to know? Oh, gosh, that is such an open-ended and deep question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I would probably just say the only other thing that I would would put out there for everyone to know um, or to hear more than anything is that, um, you know, self-investment isn't always just about Mm -hmm. self-improvement. Self-investment also means being self-accepting and again for them like that's that's really good say it again yeah so so self-investment isn't always about self-improvement self-investment is also about self-acceptance and um you will move through this world so much so much easier and in a space that um is quite untouchable if you know you can continue to get to that place or get to that place by the way you fall in and out of that place Mm -hmm. but that's how it should be because because we are we are human so yeah excellent well miss tate thank you for being on the show this was tons of fun i'm really proud of this drink that i made here yeah it's really so good it's great um don't forget to follow simone on ig not IG, because that's private, but yeah. LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Um, it, I'm just Simone Tate. Uh, Simone with two M's and Tate, T-A-I-T-T on LinkedIn. Um, and if you want to get in touch or check out HeartSpace, it's heartspaceny.com. Um, and I'm also just at info at heartspaceny.com. All right. Excellent. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Thank you to our sponsor for Season 2, Punto Space. The contemporary raw space combines capacity with intimacy. Four distinct spaces on three levels encompass more than 3,500 square feet. Custom configurations, a state-of-the-art audio-visual system, and full-service support provide endless possibilities for realizing your creative vision. Thank you for joining the conversation. To learn more about Currency Shift, go to currencyshiftnow.com. If you feel as though you fit the criteria as the first, the only, or the disruptive, send us an email, info at currencyshiftnow.com. Until next time, keep pushing, stay motivated, and stay encouraged.